Well, hey, good morning, everybody. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, I'm excited to get to dive into God's Word with you. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and find Matthew 28. Matthew 28. We have done it, my friends. We have made it to the end of the Gospel of Matthew. It took all school year to get through it. And now on our last Sunday of the school year, we come to the end of Matthew's Gospel. And that title for the message this morning is a little sneaky, all right? Not only are we talking about the end as in the last thing uh, that we read in Matthew's gospel, but we're also thinking about end as in purpose. Uh, What is the end of Matthew's gospel? Why did Matthew write this book? Uh, What's the point? What's the goal? What, What is he trying to elicit out of you and me as we read it? Um, We've walked with Matthew uh, all uh, school year long and, and saw uh, up close and personal the life, the miracles, the teachings, the ministry of Jesus. I mean, he is the focal piece of this book. And we learned in the very first week that this Jesus is the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of God. And all throughout the school year, we, we've seen those big ideas kind of unfold and flourish so that today, as we get to the last chapter of Matthew's gospel, we'll see uh, some connection points being made. In short, this morning, we're going to see, get some insight as to what this gospel is actually for. Um, Now, of course, we know it's for the edification and training of believers, right? Like we have the Bible so that we might grow in godliness. We receive this revelation so that we might know Christ and Those things are totally true, no doubt. But what's the purpose of Matthew writing this specifically? I think his mission, his purpose is here in Matthew chapter 28. So I want to pray, and then we'll dive in and hopefully give you some time at the end to discuss this together. Let's pray together. Oh God in heaven, we thank you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are God, and there is no one like you. We praise you. Because you have, in your kindness, revealed yourself to us. When we look out in nature, we see true things about who you are, that you are the creator, that you are powerful, that you are just. And Lord, we, we worship you in, in the revelation that you have given us that's common to all mankind. But Lord, our hearts are set on fire and our Souls are drawn up to worship as we consider that you have spoken to us. You've given us your very word. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we might read it and see it and behold the Lord Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. So Lord, I pray this morning as we finish up this gospel according to Matthew that you would give us eyes to see ears to hear. You would remind us of the great triumph of the resurrection, the reality of blind and sinful people deceiving themselves and others, and the great commission that you have given to your disciples and to your church. Help us to believe these things, to trust you in these things, and to be found faithful under your lordship. God, we love you. We thank you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's read together from Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. 
And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. For he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet. And worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. We start this morning with the great resurrection. We knew this was coming. We know the story. We know that Jesus doesn't stay in the tomb, that three days after his crucifixion, he rises from the dead. Uh, But Matthew gives us this beautiful scene of God's kindness towards his people as well as power over his enemies. So we see in this scene, the great resurrection, the the women are heading to the tomb to more properly prepare Jesus's body for burial. You remember Jesus died on Friday, the, the afternoon before the Sabbath. And so they were only able to do so much to prepare his body for burial. So other gospels give us information to say that they're bringing spices and ointments and things so that they might properly prepare Jesus's body to be buried in the tomb. Perhaps they didn't know about the sinful plot of the Sanhedrin that took place the day before on the Sabbath, which we read about last week. Remember, they told uh, the, the Roman guard that we need, uh, we need soldiers because they, they think they're going to steal the body and we're not going to let that happen. And so Mary and Mary go to the tomb, maybe not even knowing that there's a Roman guard supposed to be present. They just know that they want to prepare the Lord. And behold, it says, look again at verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. So uh, that word behold, we need to keep our eyes peeled for that word. We're going to see it five times in this chapter. And that's Matthew's way of cluing you and me in to not miss what's happening. That word behold is kind of like, hey, listen up. Hey, look here. Don't miss this. And what is the first thing he shows us? Behold, Matthew is guiding us to pay attention to an earthquake. Now, where did we read about an earthquake last? We read about an earthquake at the death of Jesus. So take note here. It's easy for us when we read the Gospels, when we read Scripture, when we think about the work of Christ, what Jesus did for us as our Savior, as our Messiah, as our substitute, it's easy for us to kind of fall into this temptation of segmenting and separating out Jesus' different events and accomplishments as though they were like Legos, And if we get this incarnation Lego and we get the virgin birth Lego and we get the sinless life Lego and we get the dying on the cross Lego and the resurrection Lego and and we go on and on, if we put them all together, then we get, ta-da, a savior. And that's not how we need to think about it. 
This is the work of Christ. This is one movement guided by the the lordship of God and the leadership of the Spirit in the incarnate Jesus' life to glorify his Father in heaven and to purchase a bride by his blood. And so Matthew is cluing us in, especially as it relates to the death of Jesus and his resurrection. You can't separate these things. Earthquake at his death, earthquake at the resurrection. This is one move. This is one event that takes place. We cannot separate these things as though we can only talk about the death of Jesus or we only talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Now, obviously, when we're learning about these things, for sure, but when I think about, when you think about what did Jesus do for me, we're looking at this whole span of this wonderful, miraculous, amazing, God-glorifying work. Then we see an angel on the scene doing work, right? He shows up unseals the tomb, rolls the stone away, hops up on it, and the Roman guard, these trained soldiers, these warriors that go out to battle, respond to this angel by passing out. Like, that's their response. Their response to seeing the angel of God uh, unseal this tomb and roll away the stone is not to guard but it's to fall down as though dead, Matthew says. That should astound us when we read in verse 5 that the angel then turns and looks at these two women and says to them with, I mean, you just got to see the scene here. Like there's an angel sitting on a rock. There are passed out soldiers everywhere. And there are two women with like spices and stuff. And they're like, and the angel says to these women, Hey, don't be afraid. I know why you're here. You're here to seek Jesus. So this angel reminds you and me, students, that if you are seeking Jesus, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be led by your fear. And there are very real reasons why you might feel fear. There might be real reasons in your life where your fear might cause you to avoid looking for Jesus. Maybe you are shamed by your sin. Or maybe there's something that's happened to you that you think has so shamed you or so uh, dirtied you that you can't bear the idea of standing before or coming into the presence of Jesus. And this scene, this moment right here, this verse, I pray would dispel that in your heart and in your mind. No, if you seek Jesus, if you want to see Jesus, you don't need to be afraid. The Lord is not standing against you. He's drawing you in to look and to see Jesus for who he is. And that's why this angel says to the Marys, he says, look, I know why you're here. You're here because you're seeking Jesus, the one who is crucified, but you just missed him because he's risen. As he said, his word is trustworthy. This angel, this messenger proclaims the news of Jesus's resurrection to these two women. God's word, Jesus's word has been validated. And the angel says, look, let me prove it to you. Come on in. Like he didn't roll away the stone so that Jesus could get out. 
He rolled away the stone so that the women could look in and see that he was raised. And then the angel gives this commission to the women. The first to know of the resurrection, that they might go and tell the disciples. They were given the responsibility of proclaiming the news of Jesus conquering death to his disciples. I mean, don't miss this. Like in Jesus's earthly ministry, you have Jesus and then you have the 12. In Matthew 27, during the death of Christ, we, we learn that these women were always there. They were always in the orbit of Jesus's ministry. But for whatever reason, some of them were on the periphery. They weren't the central disciples. And yet this angel says to these women, hey, you need to be the ones to tell those disciples that Jesus will meet them in Galilee. If you want to look for him, if you want to see him, you'll see him there. In Galilee, angel, the angel says, you will see him. And that's just what they were at the grave for, wasn't it? To see Jesus. Now, don't overlook this. Because in the culture of this narrative, women were not very important. And that's not the Bible affirming that women are unimportant. That's the Bible being a historical document, right? It exists in a time and in a place. And in the first century, Jewish and Roman empire culture, women were not very important. They were not prominent. They weren't even trustworthy. I mean, you've heard Pastor Brian say just a couple of weeks ago, I mean, in the court of in, in a courtroom case, women's testimony weren't even admitted as valid testimony. And that's not to say that's right. Obviously, that's wrong. But if we were going to make up a story in the first century about this Jesus, this prophet, this Messiah who was raised from the grave, the first people to find out and the first people to go share with the the others who were followers of Jesus, if we were making this up, we wouldn't have written women into the story. And yet, the Lord is validating the importance of women here by showing them that women and men are image bearers just the same. The way that they reflect God's glory, the, the essence that in which they were made to reflect God's glory, it's not qualitatively different. It looks different in different ways, in different scenes, in different scenarios in life. And in our culture, Teenagers share a lot of overlap with the women of the first century. Not very trustworthy. Yay or nay, right? Uh, Not very prominent. Not really the movers and shakers of our culture. Overlooked. Not seen as very important. And yet, God saw fit in this story to entrust the message of the resurrection to the ones whom the culture might not expect. And their obedience, as some of the least in their culture, serves as a model to all of you in ours. Their obedience is our example. So don't overlook the idea or the fact that we see here that Jesus uses people that the culture might overlook, that the culture might seem un- deem unimportant or not prominent or not even trustworthy 
to bring the message of the gospel to those who need it. And students, that's you. God has given you the gospel. He's given you his word. He's given you the message of the resurrection so that you might go. And that you might go knowing that it's not in your power that those things are going to have effect in the world. But it is going to be God's power in you producing faithfulness and fruit. So, the Marys left immediately to obey, mixed with joy and fear, running back to share the news that Jesus is not in the tomb anymore. And behold, Matthew says, verse 9, and behold, Jesus met them. Now, I don't know about you, but there's, so, has anybody ever had like uh, a shot of adrenaline that you thought something big was about to happen and then it didn't and then something else happened? Like, have you ever just kind of had one of those kind of roller coaster kind of days? I did. It's called when Abe was born. So um, it's probably, oh, I don't know, two in the morning. Abe is a day old and... Um, Things you don't learn. This is, I don't think it's gross. I mean, it's, it's babies. Um, things that you learned that I didn't know uh, before I became a dad, which is uh, babies have a lot of fluid in them and they got to get it out. And so at 2.30 in the morning, um, you know, we're one day old parents. I'm, you know, kind of half asleep or whatever. And I hear my son, uh, a day old, start to cough. And so I'm like, okay, well, okay, what's going on here? And he proceeds to vomit directly into the air. And I'm thinking, homie, you haven't eaten anything. So what is this? And I am like pouring sweat immediately. Heart rate jumps up. I'm like, what is going on? And so uh, we clean him up. Everything's good. He's fine. And the nurse comes in a couple minutes later and we're like, hey, so uh, what, what was this? And they're like, oh, I'm actually surprised he hasn't done that already. And I'm like, you could have gave me the heads up, you know? Like, so I thought I needed to be there for something. I thought I needed to be all there. And so this adrenaline just flushed my body. And then it went away. And it, it left me in this weird kind of state, right? Fast forward a couple hours later. Um, Whitley is learning how to clean some stuff. And um, so in, in the delivery or in the kind of the post-op room, uh, there's a sink, like right next to the bed. And I'm on the other side of the bed, like half asleep or whatever. The baby's asleep next to me. Everything's cool. Like, I'm just trying to get some rest. Whitley's over there working with the nurse. And they're dumping water into this sink. And so you, you know the sound when, like, there's too much water in the sink, and so it just has to kind of draw down. And then the last little gulp at the end, you know what I'm talking about? It's like that kind of gloop. Okay. You know what else sounds exactly like that sink? A one-day-old baby throwing up in the middle of the night. So I hear this sound and levitate off the couch towards my son. And Whitley knows exactly what's happening. She's like, it's the sink. It's the sink. It's not the baby. And I am like, everything's okay. She's like, yeah, everything's okay. And I'm like, oh, gosh, okay. So... So I, it's just this mix of like fear and intensity and emotion mixed with relief that like my son is fine. Then maybe like 90 minutes later, it keeps going. So 
Um, another thing I didn't know, because it was behind the hospital bed the whole time, is that there was a landline phone in our room. Cool. Um, you know, I haven't used a landline in a decade. So um, all of our stuff has been with cell phones. And so uh, Whitley's still, you know, she's hooked up some, some stuff. She's got some like IVs and different things going on. And um, she's talking to somebody about some kind of like getting discharged. I don't even remember what the conversation was. Again, I, at this point, I don't feel good. Like I'm a little nauseous. I'm a little sickly. Like I'm just kind of like, <laughs> I just need to rest. This is so terrible. As if like I did a lot of work uh, in this experience. And so then someone calls our room. Now, I don't know why I could maybe ask some doctors in the room why the phones in hospital rooms sound like alarms, but they do. And so this phone rings, and I mean, and it's like, and I'm thinking like, something's wrong with Whitley now. So for the third time in like 18 hours, I'm like, leaping to my feet to figure out what's wrong because I'm feeling all this responsibility and I'm like all, you know, I'm the dad now, which I don't know what that means. They're going to like send me home with a human later. Um, And so Whitley again is just dying laughing because she's just watching all of this unfold. Like she obviously sees the phone ringing and she sees me like scrounging to figure out what's going on. Okay. But when I come to my senses and I realize everything is fine, There's relief. My body didn't know what was going on. My mind couldn't process what was going on. My heart was in a million different directions trying to be present where it needed to be. And so these Marys go to the tomb believing they're going to find the body of their Lord and he's gone. And an angel is telling them, hey, go on ahead And you'll see Jesus in Galilee. Go tell the disciples, go meet him there. And so the text tells us that they leave with fear and joy mixed together. I mean, there's just a lot of emotions going on, a lot of anticipation, a lot of expectation, a lot of things they thought was going to happen one way, happening another way. And now they're being sent to go tell the disciples incredible news. And they turn the corner and it's Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him, I think, yeah, that makes sense. Because I'm going to fall down, like, regardless. And so that's probably the first thing I'm going to touch. Like, it's not like, oh, good to see you, buddy. It's like, I am going to fall down as though dead. And the first thing I'm going to touch is his feet. Because I need to know in this moment, is what is before me right now, is it real? Because like I thought my son was in danger, but it wasn't real, right? And so all of that stuff pent up in me was, was actually being directed towards something that wasn't real. And so these women, they grab a hold of Jesus' feet to know, is this really him? And it was. And they worshiped him. And it gets me every time. Jesus' response to them. Verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. 
His mercy and His kindness continue. He knows the women are going to the disciples, the very ones who fell away, the very ones who denied Him. He tells the women, don't be afraid. And He knows where they're going. And so He says to these women, not tell my disciples, not, hey, tell the ones that fell away from me, not, hey, tell those guys that I'm frustrated with right now because they left me to die in the garden. He says, no, go tell my brothers that I'll see him in Galilee. Tell my brothers. Student, I don't know if you've ever felt like you've wandered away from God. Probably. It may be due to sin or a season of hard-heartedness or some circumstance out of your control. But here's the promise in Matthew 28, verse 10. If you go looking for Jesus where he says he will be, you can be sure that you will find him. Go tell my brothers to meet me in Galilee. And for you students, God has given us incredible means of grace to find Jesus. He's given us his word. He's given us the gift of prayer. He's given us the local church, the body of Christ. He's given us the gift of preaching. He's given us the fellowship of the saints. So no matter where you've gone, no matter how far away you feel like you've wandered, hear the promise. If you go looking for Jesus, you will find him. And he's told you where to find him. The women believe this. We see the opposite kind of proclamation, however, among the Jewish leaders in the Roman guard. So let's keep reading. We'll pick up our pace. Verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So the great resurrection is followed, number two, by the great deception. The great deception. As the disciples head into Galilee to see Jesus, the guards report back to the chief priests there in the city of Jerusalem. Now, you got to keep in mind the context of this story. These guys saw an angel. Like they saw an angel of God. And their response to him was to pass out as though dead. Yet here they are, taking a bribe to change their story in order for the Sanhedrin to save face and retain power in Jerusalem. Now, now don't miss the importance and the severity of what they're being asked to say. They're being asked to confess to sleeping on the job as a Roman guard. This was a capital offense. Like the wages of this was death. So, so the Sanhedrin is telling the guard, hey, tell everybody that you uh, committed a capital offense and are worthy of death among the Roman Empire. We'll give you some money though. And that's why the elders say, if this news gets to the governor, we'll protect you. We'll protect you. Now think through what their story is. 
So some disciples in the middle of the night snuck past the trained Roman guard, unsealed the tomb, rolled away the stone, stole Jesus' body, all without alerting or waking anyone. That's ridiculous. I mean, like, you've read the gospel to know that, like, if anybody is going to be SEAL Team 6, it's not the disciples. You know what I mean? Like, they're out in the boat looking at Jesus walking on the water, and they're like, it's a ghost! You know? Or, like, kids walking up to Jesus, and they're like, get off him! Like, they're not really making the most, like, intelligent decisions all the time. But that's all they have. Now, we may wonder why the guards didn't go to Pilate and tell the truth. Remember, they saw an angel. Like, I just feel like that would probably change my perspective on things. But here's the point. And it's a reality check for all of us, but I hope and pray that it actually is an encouragement to us. Even an encounter with an angelic being is not enough to change a sinner's heart. And it is not enough to open their eyes to the truth of who Jesus is. So you might feel a certain kind of weight on your shoulders for people that you love and care for who don't know Jesus. And there should be a sense of urgency in your heart to be an ambassador for Christ in that person's life, to, to be the aroma of Christ in that person's life, to share the good news of the gospel with that person, as we'll be called to do in just a few verses. But know this, you do not have the power to open the eyes of the blind. And if you start to believe that you do, you will walk around inevitably, eventually, in total despair. Because you'll begin to wonder, is that person's lack of faith my fault? Is that person's lack of belief in the gospel my fault? And what this passage is telling us is, look, an angel isn't changing their mind, who is sinless, who has lived in eternity in the resplendent glory of God in heaven. I think you're going to be okay, right? So so don't put on the weight that the scriptures are not telling you to put on. This guard then took the money and told the story. And Matthew tells us, this is a little editorial piece in verse 15, that that story's going around. Even as Matthew writes this gospel, he's saying, hey, I know that you've heard this story. Here's where it comes from. Now, why is that profitable for us to read? Well, as I said, you don't have the capacity to change a sinner's heart. That's a reality check because there are people that we love that if we could give anything, I mean, this is Paul's, this is Paul's passion in Romans 9 through 11. If I myself could be accursed for the sake of my kinsmen, I would do it. I mean, and all of us probably have people in our life that don't know Jesus that we would say, man, I would do anything, anything so that they might have their eyes open and see that they are dead in their sin and apart from the grace of Christ are headed for hell. So take heart then. The gospel is presented by you, but its power is not from you. So we look to the women who go and proclaim the truth in faithfulness. 
We do not look to the guards who followed Judas in taking money and the things of this world over the truth. The choice for you is not, am I going to save people? The choice for you is, am I going to be faithful to what God has called me to do? Or will I wander after the things of this world at the expense of the truth? That's the the clear comparison that Matthew is giving you and me here at the end. Am I going to follow in the footsteps of the women? Or am I going to follow in the footsteps of these guards? All right, let's land the plane. Very familiar passage. Verse 16. Now the 11 disciples, that's important. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to, obey, to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the great resurrection... The great deception wrapped up here at the end in the Great Commission. The Great Commission. Matthew begins this paragraph by saying the 11 disciples. And that alerts us to two important truths. Number one, remember, Judas is not there. Judas suffered in his sin from a worldly grief that leads to death. He went out from the disciples because he was not really one of the disciples. You can read more about that in 1 John. But the second truth is that the 11 disciples are there, which means Peter is there. The one who denied Jesus three times has come to see the Lord. They go to a mountain in Galilee. Now remember, we've walked through Matthew, and it should remind you, when you hear mountains and Jesus, you should be reminded that this is the place of divine revelation. Jesus taught from the mountains. He revealed his glory to Peter, James, and John on the mountain. And here he's going to give his disciples an age-defining commission. Before that, though, we see the worship of Jesus yet again. The disciples know that only God is to be worshipped. I mean, these are good Jewish disciples. So they know that only God is worthy of worship. Yet here we are. These disciples gathered around Jesus, worshiping him as though God. Even still, it says, some doubted. Some doubted. They had hearts and minds that were still reeling from the last 72 hours. Unsettled. Now, I don't know about you, but isn't that reassuring? That the disciples of Jesus find themselves even in the midst of standing and worshiping before the Lord Jesus, risen from the grave with doubt in their heart. And like the the scripture is not trying to give us this kind of ideal, spotless, perfect idea of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's showing us reality. And for you and me, we can be assured that when we find ourselves with doubts about God, you can still go to him. You can still go to worship him, and he's not going to turn you away. Then Jesus gives the disciples and us as the church his great commission. But he grounds that commission in his authority 
as the resurrected Christ, the God-man, he now has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the king. If you remember in Matthew chapter 4, after Jesus is baptized, he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And one of the things that Satan tempts Jesus with is authority over the earth. He says, if you'll just fall down and worship me, you see all these kingdoms? They're yours. You get to rule over all of that. And Jesus withstood temptation. He quoted scripture to the devil. The devil fled from him. And now, on the other side of the grave, on the other side of his resurrection, Jesus gets to say with full authority as both truly God and truly man, all authority in heaven and on earth, all authority has been given to me. So his commission to you and me as his disciples, as his followers, is an edict from the king of kings. So as followers of Jesus, we go and make disciples. We proclaim the good news that Jesus came to save sinners. We invite people to surrender, to repent of their sin, and to place their faith in Christ. And who do we reach? According to this passage, who do we go to reach? All nations. Remember, God told Abraham that through his offspring, the nations will be blessed. And here we have Jesus, the son of Abraham, sending out his disciples to say, go reach the nations. We put no limit on who's worthy to hear the gospel. We go to the whole world, whether that's across the lunchroom or across the street or across the country or across an ocean. We go to the whole world. And how do we lead them to be disciples? I mean, he says, go, make disciples of all the nations. First, we baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, what does that mean, right? We show them that baptism is how God's people publicly identify with Christ. There's nothing magic about baptism, but there is something sanctifying about it. Which is to say, if you're here and you've not yet been baptized, let me encourage you to consider, why not? Because Jesus is clear here that the way that disciples identify themselves with me is by going into the waters of baptism. You might say, well, I've made a confession. I've confessed my faith. I've professed it in words. Wonderful. Praise God. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But Jesus says, the way that you display your identification with me to the world is right here in these waters. Your baptism is the profession that the world hears and sees. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is how we show the world that we're in him. So we baptize, and second, we teach them to observe all that Jesus commands. That is to say, we walk alongside them as they grow in both their knowledge and obedience to God's word. So we need knowledge of God's word, We need to know what he said in order for us to obey it. And we need to obey God's word. It's not enough for us to just have head knowledge, but we need to live out what we know in obedience to God's word. This right here is the mission of the church. This right here is the end of Matthew's gospel. Jesus is risen. Jesus is 
king. Jesus will bless the nations through the faithful proclamation of the gospel. This is the mission that Jesus calls all of us to take on as our own. Now, how this plays out in your life can look drastically different from the people around your table. But it means that our heartbeat is to know God in Christ and to make him known in the world. So you think about your future. And I'm not talking about like after college, job, marriage, how. I'm talking about like this summer. Think about your future. How can I think about, strategize, orchestrate my life so that as I'm growing in my knowledge of God and obedience to his word, the heartbeat of my life is to know God and to make him known. Now, some of that is going to be among believers. Praise God. We need that. That's why the church exists. It's not good that we do this alone. And so maybe this summer, you're putting the eggs of your life into the basket of, I want to grow really close to these brothers and sisters because for the next few years of my life, this is who I'm sharing Jesus alongside. And if I don't know this brother, if I don't know this sister, if I'm not praying for them in any kind of honesty, if they don't know how to pray for me in honesty, if we're not holding each other accountable, then we're not going to be as effective when we're actually going out to accomplish the mission. Maybe it's recognizing that I don't have any kind of practice or pattern in my life of actually talking to people outside of the church about Jesus. And that's not to shame you. That's just to say everybody's got to start somewhere. But this is the commission that God has given each one of us. God has not called all of you and me to be missionaries in a cross-cultural setting on the other side of the planet, but he has called all of you to the local church. He's called all of you to take up this commission as your own. And how that plays out is going to be under the leadership of the Spirit and the discernment that He gives to you. And before we veer into feeling the weight of doing what even the angel couldn't do for the Roman soldiers, we need to read the end of verse 20. Behold, Jesus says, clue in a sin, look at this. Behold, I am with you. To the end of the age. I'm with you, Jesus says, always to the end of the age. Christians do not experience a moment where Jesus is not present by his spirit. That's where Matthew leaves his reader. I mean, it's just, it's just over after that. So Matthew leaves you and me sitting like we are with Jesus's resurrected life before us, his authority over us, his commission ringing in our ears, and his presence promised to us. So my prayer is that we would take Matthew's word as God's word, that we would submit to the authority of Jesus, that we would rejoice in the wonders of the resurrection. That we would make it our aim and our charge and our commitment day by day, moment by moment. Do not fall in the deception of those guards. Do not fall in the deception of the self-righteous. Do not fall into the deception of a culture that hates Christ and offers all kinds of trinkets in, in exchange for Christ. But to live in light of God's presence to live under his authority, 
to go and make disciples, to live as a disciple. Let's pray together, and then we'll discuss this in our groups.